My name is Brad Henderson. I'm here with uh, Mr. Greg Sims. Uh, going to be doing a commentary for the fear. How you doing? Not not too bad. How about you? I'm doing well. <laughs> so the Devon Entertainment uh, you were saying is comes from your son's name. Devon Entertainment is my son's first name, Devon. So around the time of setting up a company, thought, okay, that's a perfect name for the company. So that was it. And that opening quote, uh, where did that uh, stem from? Was that something that you had in mind or was that Ron Ford's idea, Vincent? I would love to tell you that I had a, I, that I wrote it, but I believe it came from Vincent. Pre okay. pretty, pretty certain he found that somewhere. So there we hear this uh, opening scene with, uh, with the child running around. Where was it? Was this all shot pretty much in Lake Arrowhead area? Almost the whole movie was shot in Lake Arrowhead. I had already been living up there for a while and uh, really loved it. And it just seemed like the perfect place to do a movie and particularly a horror movie. So we, we went out and shot a lot of unpermitted, unpermitted um, locations and uh, found some really great stuff. Like where the l little Eddie is uh, running around was, was pretty interesting and carving in the tree. Um, these strange people that were uh, digging graves. I'm not sure, but I think, that I, I think we tried our best to protect the little guy from having nightmares, but I think he might have been a little freaked out still. <laughs> Now, with uh, shooting up at Lake Arrowhead, what was uh, kind of the filming conditions like as far as did they shut down part of it for you? Were you there early in the morning, weekdays? How did that work? We shot a pretty standard uh, schedule, um, you know, long days, um, some split days. And um, there were, there, you know, like I say, a lot of the, as far as I remember, our forest locations we kind of stole but all the physical, the, the, the practical places, the houses. We were gonna shoot at my house, but it was a little too modern to make it feel right, so we wound up getting a, a couple of cabins. Then there's this scene, of course, that uh, where Morty turns into uh, Wes Craven, which was really fun. And there's Eddie. And... Um, this was a was was a big thrill to have Wes involved in the movie. I'm not sure if I've talked about that before, at least not here. But um, Wes was a friend of mine. Uh, I had actually introduced Roy Wagner to him, and Roy shot Nightmare Three. Roy Wagner had shot my movie Return to Horror High, and so I got to know Wes and Marianne, his longtime producing partner, and I asked him if he would play this fun role of the professor and he said well you know I've never I've never been in a movie uh, as an actor unless it's been a cameo in one of my own movies just kind of my he's a very was a very shy guy and I said well think about it because I'd love to have you do it and he thought about it and he called me and he said you know I'm gonna I'm gonna do it and so it was a lot of fun and he came up and the whole mountain was pretty much buzzing that Wes Craven was up there although most people expected Wes to be you know, a guy that looked like maybe Kane Hodder from Friday the 13th. <laughs> and of course, he's a mild-mannered, was a very mild-mannered, you know, lovely guy, just the nicest guy ever. 
How was uh, how was Eddie during uh, all of this getting prepared to be on screen with Wes Craven? Was he nervous or anything, or did everything just flow like normal? Well, I'd have to. Sp- I, I hate to speak for Eddie. I think Eddie had the normal uh, trepidations of an actor who was. I think it was his first lead role, and it was a lot on his shoulders. And I think he was really serious, preparing for everything, but. Boy, he was just great from day one in terms of being a pro. No attitude, um, great team player with all the other actors. And I think with Wes, he was a little bit like, wow, but but he really pulled it off. Now, this spot is a college somewhere, I want to say in West Covina, that we shot. And there's Baron Heinel. He was our cinematographer who did a really beautiful job. One of the um, one of the things I'm really looking forward to in the restoration is getting Baron's original uh, look down because he shot very dark and very beautiful, and you have to you have to you know in post get that exactly right. Up, oh, Ron Ford, that is Ron again, Ford. Cameo from the writer, yeah. Yes. So uh, you know it's been a while since I've really watched this, so I'm rediscovering it Robert <laughs> Robert O. Raglan uh, quite the character very talented guy did our music thought he came up with a great theme very you know a little bit of echoes of Hitchcock and and he had done Raglan had done uh, the the wish um, what's the Charles Bronson movie Death Wish he had done a couple of those so he had done some pretty big orchestral scores and he gave us kind of a big sound for very little money. We're still at the college. Yeah, and I do remember we had to have insurance and actually have a permit there, if I recall. And, um, and that went pretty smoothly. There's Darren. Uh, you know, just all of these guys were such terrific actors. Um, that was the big fun. My, my thing in movies is always, I tell the director, I'm gonna be really involved in casting Oh wow, I forgot Billy Wallace is in this, okay. So the, uh, the guy on the left, the cop, not the shorter one, but the taller one, um, Billy Wallace was the cop in uh, Beverly Hills Cop. That's the Eddie Murphy movie, right? Yeah. Yeah, he, had a big, he played the, the, the asshole cop in the, uh, the guy on the left, the blonde guy, he played the asshole cop in Beverly Hills Cop. So. I said, hey, do you want to play an asshole cop and not make any money compared to him? <laughs> and he's like, sure. <laughs> he, he was a friend, a really great guy. So, um, yeah, so that was this part. But, yeah, put, for me, putting actors together and getting involved in the music is where I'm really involved. Collaborating, of course, with the director, but I always tell the director, casting, music, and then I never stand over your shoulder while you make your movie, which I think I've always stayed pretty true to. And... Um, and this cast. So you were involved with, 
the most most of the casting for the film then so all the casting on any movie i do yeah. nobody even has a speaking role unless that's just the area that i you know and also as a manager i you know talent is the area that i work most closely and now in this movie if i recall uh several were my clients and i developed roles around them i'm eddie was uh was a client of mine and um anna karen who is the Swedish blonde later. She was a client. And of course, Vince Edwards was a client mm -hmm. of mine. And, you know, getting Vince was a, was a big deal because, you know, even though he was not at the height of his stardom, getting him to do a small movie, you know, was, you know, you had, he had to have a reason to do it. And uh, we came up with this character and he said he'd do it. And he was quite a character on the set, but he was, he was a lot of fun. But anyway, this is where all the, Leland Hayward, um, right there, Ann Turkel. I knew Ann, I didn't manage her, but I knew her, and she was a great sport and came on board. Um, Leland, I believe his great-grandfather was one of the most famous agents in Hollywood. Um, I might, might have that wrong, but I think that was the case. Um, Heather Medway, who I just saw the other day and is as beautiful as ever. Um, you know, was our, our star. This was her first lead, and she did a great job and then went on to star in Viper and a bunch of, bunch of lead roles in TV. And then she took 20 years off to have kids, which is something that often happens. And um, now, this now is that exterior is, shot. Is this uh, up going to Lake Arrowhead by chance, or? That is Highway 18 going up to Lake Arrowhead, which is beautiful and looks just like this. And then on days when it's snowing, um, it is really scary. I've had passengers crying. And you go up, it's snowing, it's uh, snow, rain, sleet, and a whiteout, and people can't, and fog, and you can't see the lines on the road, people start to cry, but this was a beautiful day. So this was on the hillside looking over San Bernardino, um, an area that's not as beautiful as Lake Arrowhead. But um, yeah, I remember making sure people didn't fall off rocks. <laughs> All these little things. Why haven't we been back? <laughs> it's so beautiful. Yeah. Tony and Monique, um, both really terrific actors and a lot of fun, as I recall, working with them. Yeah, again, it was it was an ensemble. I believe Vincent could correct this. I think we put everybody together for a read through and got a little chemistry going beforehand. Uh, a little bit of rehearsal, not much. Yeah, that's the thing about this film is that there's so many different types of characters, but it all flows so well because it does feel like they all are very close. Or even if they do have that animosity towards each other, it feels very authentic. You can feel it on the screen right away. Well, that's, that's good. That's what we wanted. And they were complicated characters, and people really often, lay people get confused and think, oh, low-budget movie, it's really easy, you know, just throw a bunch of people. But when you have that many characters, it's actually pretty expensive um, to shoot and plan and choreograph because there's a lot, lot going on. And uh, Vincent did a really great job getting that uh, together. Along with... Uh, well, yeah, so it's, a lot of these films, they're just, they're these standard you know, uh, 
very dry characters and, and especially in horror films you know everybody's the same in this one <laughs> it's every character has a different personality um, and that's why I've always kind of uh, been really drawn to this film in general just because you can every character is memorable when a lot of these other films a lot of the characters run together you don't remember characters names that sort of thing well that is good to hear I mean my whole theory on horror movies is you're taking some theme that people might be bored with in a, in, a, in a drama, straight drama setting, and putting it in a context that's fun or scary, and, but having really fucked up and interesting characters, and that that's what people respond to. And I think that's true. I mean, there were some reviews of the movie saying, this is the worst movie I've ever seen. It's like pretending to be a psychodrama. And then there were some reviews saying, this is an amazing psychodrama. It's so complex, and the characters are great, and bravo. So, you know, I'll go with the, the latter reviews because, um, I mean... Yeah, no, it's, de it's definitely more than just a horror film, which is, which is a, a nice touch because, uh, honestly, um, you know, with, with a lot of how these films are made nowadays, like really recently, we are more into psychological horror rather than just straight slasher films. And I think... You know, in a way, this is a little before its time, in a good way. But maybe that's because people didn't grasp onto that yet. But yeah, this is definitely more of a psychological uh, drama horror film than, than uh, I guess, maybe what was marketed, you know, uh, to, to people. Or even seeing the box art thinking it's going to be like, you know, a doll or something killing people. Um, which is a lot more than that, obviously. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, Morty is a pretty visual character, and that was a lot of fun to come up with. My original idea for you know doing a movie was a bit of my fear of inanimate objects, dolls, like the, in Magic. Although that was after you know that the Twilight Zone with the the doll that comes alive. That's all really scary, and it was kind of an idea. What happens if you have a, a life size? mannequin or doll and then it evolved into the Indian theme and um, into Morty and Morty is my father's nickname his name is Morton which is about the least scary kind of an odd name and uh, Morty as a nickname just was such a weird you know off off topic name it seemed to work I kind of think it's still fun Now, how many, um, I mean, I guess we can get to it. We'll get more into Morty once we see him on screen. But uh, we'll jump into kind of, um, I, I did have a question about Darren's character. Because Darren's character is just very, it's very authentic, especially in that time period. Was Darren's character written around kind of his own personality? What did he bring to the table of his own? Or is that what you had in mind? Because it is it is a very fun character and it's incredibly authentic. So most of these characters, as I recall, you know, a lot of the, I can't remember, do I have a story credit in this? I mean, I might, but the, um, the original idea was something I developed around really fucked up, you know, people kind of drawn from real life. So if I recall, and I might have this wrong, um, Darren's character and Anne and the whole, um, you know, older, younger dynamic was probably based a little bit on 
one relationship I had and then two or three of other people was kind of a, a, it's always been a thing, but it was always a fun idea of having that age difference. And then I think that uh, Ron, Vincent, Ron and uh, Vincent, uh, you know, started to refine the characters around the actors as the process went on. So there's definitely some of Darren in there, but you know, as an actor, Darren would be able to speak to that and probably has already done in his interview better than I could, but he was definitely, I mean, but Darren really brought a character, that was not him, I mean, the whole, and that, and the whole, um, the whole sort of, you know, a cultural misappropriation thing, as I'm thinking about it now, which is probably, could get us in trouble, where he's kind of, you know, a black guy in a white guy's body, that was, um, uh, some of my friends, you know, that was a thing that was going on, you know, it, it even wound up when my own son sort of, you know, became the guy that was doing hip hop and had two pit bulls. And once he took an ad out and it sounded, I said, anybody reads this ad, you know, it's like, hey, I'm a rapper and I've got two pit bulls and I'm looking for a roommate. They're like going to think, you know, you're a black guy because, you know, and, and today, you, you know, there's a little bit of cultural misappropriation I don't know but but for me that's the thing that has always brought people together is the the cultures that's really what happened with rap music and hip-hop and that's why there's so much of it in the movie um, yeah there goes Morty and um, yeah so the, this design for Morty where um, you know how many variations of Morty happened before this is what we see on screen I think that John Beekler, who was a wonderful guy and um, really creative and really loved what he was doing. I think that he sketched that pretty close to what we wound up with from the beginning and, and evolved from there with, uh, as I recall, a lot of uh, assistance from Jason Hamer, who, uh, as we all know, is a great guy and has gone on and had a really successful career, as did John, but John passed away a few years ago. And um, yeah, Morty was Morty was complicated, um, especially the, the head and the face. So, and I remember Eric. Uh, Eric was also such a, a wonderful guy and put up with so much in terms of the prosthetics and the practical stuff we did. And he had to sit really still and. I just remember us approaching, you know, how do we how do we keep him still? Do we, you know, slow the film down, which I think we did in a few places. And um, that was that was a big challenge. So how often is Eric in this outfit in the film? Because obviously there's there's times where it's obviously not him, but there's like right now seems like he's really in that outfit just sitting there. Um, I don't remember when it wasn't him. I think it was always him. Oh, okay. I'm pretty sure. I mean, there might have been a... I don't even think that a, there was a, a straight-up mannequin. mannequin. No, I no. think... Oh, yeah, that's I, incredibly interesting. It's, I, I, never, I never would have dreamed it was always him. It's incredibly interesting if I'm right. Otherwise, I'm just incredibly <laughs> stupid, which is entirely possible. But I don't think we had a budget to do that and look at those things next to Eddie it looks like two eyes that was weird um, did you see that where Eddie was there it looked like there were two eyes yeah 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 trying to remember if that was intentional and then we had Anne who um, was married to Richard Harris 
the Oscar nominated uh, uh, and very famous actor, really amazing actor. And Anne's own life was, she met him when I think she was 19 or 20, Vogue cover girl. Richard was much older. And so there's a lot of the older, younger dynamic in that, in this, uh, in these characters. And again, that may have been a part of basing that, these characters around that, but the opposite way, where the, where the woman is uh, older than the guy. Yeah, she she still fits in quite nicely, even though you know obviously she's she's older than than some of these characters here. But um, you know, it, it's nice because it, she feels like she fits in more or less like you know more than like a dead mother or something like that. And now with, um, you said that uh, John Beekler and Jason Hammer, or Hamer came up with the design for Morty, but how much input did you just say, I want this wooden mannequin, or would you just let them have kind of free reign to create what uh, they thought um, would be best? Like, how did that work out? Well, you know, I dug back into my uh, memory, and that didn't work really well. Um, because it's been quite a few years. My recollection is that, I mean, the whole concept was mine, you know, I mean, they're not about taking credit, this was all collaborative, but, you know, the whole life-size doll. I, I think that Beekler and I came up with the wooden guy, but it could have been more Vincent, and the worst thing I can do is tell you definitively that I remember. So I'm sure Vincent's gonna have a take on that. And, uh, and like I say, I'd love to um, be able to tell you this is exactly how it was, but that part's a little bit hazy. Now with uh, this location that everybody's at, was this just one of the cabins that you rented out uh, for that time period, or? Like, did you rent cabins at Lake Arrowhead and have them for so, you know, however so long while you were there for the shoot, or how did that work? So, you know, I had my primary house up there. I know people were were crashed up there part of the time. We took over the resort and had most people at the Lake Arrowhead Resort. And then when we decided my house was too modern, we rented this particular house, which as I recall is up closer to Crestline and it's right on the the rim, on the edge of uh, the top of the mountain in Lake Arrowhead and it was really pretty vintage. There's like a devil Satan um, worship place around the corner that's still there. It's a lot of great stories. There is Vince Edwards, Uncle Pete. So yes, so this, so this house we rented legit, you know, for whatever number of days. I'm gonna guess this was five days, six days, something like that. And this is Vince so, Edwards' last movie, correct? It is. It was Vince Edwards' last movie. And, um, and he was, as I say, we were, we were really good friends. We became good friends. I managed him for the last few years of his life. It was a lot of fun. Um, he had these amazing relationships with guys like William Friedkin, who put him in Deal of the Century and, you know, 
we would go to the Playboy Mansion and hang out. And he was a big womanizer, partier, gambler, um, bigger than life. A very, very nice guy, kind of tough guy, but I always laugh because Stacy, who was our script supervisor, who I did eventually marry and get divorced and have a kid with, not in that order, um, Stacy was reminding me that Vince would sit on the set and scream, script girl, script girl, where's, you know, very, you know, 1950s. You know, he did the movie The Killing for Kubrick. Had a real, real legit pedigree in, uh, in, um, in film, in feature films, and, but was very old school. And she said it would just drive her crazy. He'd be screaming, where's the script girl? You know, get over here. And yet that was just a bunch of bluster. So, you know, he would, he would, he would piss people off and aggravate them. But overall, you know, he was bigger than life and a lot of fun. And I think he, he did a great job in this character. Yeah, it brings a different dynamic again to to this group of uh, of characters, and we've since we've been talking that there's a lot of interaction, introductions to people uh, during uh, all of this, uh, even prior before you know Vince Edwards showed up. So uh, you know this is such a great introduction to characters. How how many uh, days and how many takes was it to kind of just and you know how many ways. Did did uh, was this shot in order to get all these characters to talk and and communicate and get to know and then also bond? Yeah, it was uh, well since everybody was pretty much living with each other, kind of in the sense that they were all up in the mountains and that was an adventure. That bonding happened, you know. I think think in an early rehearsal and then once everybody got up there, you, you know, you knew you were doing something kind of fun and um, and different. Um, I believe. This whole sequence was a, a giant clusterfuck because of how many people there were. And as I recall, um, Vincent and Barron were able to somehow map this out so that it didn't kill us in terms of number of days. But it wasn't quick. I mean, you've really got everybody here, you know, on camera talking and moving around, and that is not an easy thing to do. And, I thought in this scene particular, everybody's very believable and, you know, you'd, you'd never know these actors were all just thrown together, really. But what if your dad was right? He could be. Come on, there's no damn God. This woo-woo crystal or regression shit. It's a damn ripoff. Yeah, but maybe somewhere. Maybe you're not so sure. Yeah, and being here shooting at a real cabin at this point, correct? So, like, how many crew members were in this room, and how big was this room in general? Not so big, um, and we were cramped, and it was a pretty good-sized crew. Um, you know, this was this was when indie filmmaking was pretty robust, although we had a very, very low budget, and so. Um, Baron had a fairly lean crew, as I remember, but, you know, a number of people. I'd have to look at the call sheet to remember, but there were a bunch of people crammed in there. I really wish we had more behind-the-scenes shots, and um, somewhere they exist. Anybody who is listening to this, please send in photos if you have them. <laughs> It'll be, be a little late, but... And that was a, a head that uh, 
Beekler made. So I remember the character was called uh, Schwart Piet, which is Dutch for Black Piet. And subsequent to making this movie, I wound up and still do have a whole life in Amsterdam just because of some of the work I do in music. And I really didn't understand all the heritage at the time, but Black Pete uh, really is a somewhat racist um, character, you know, in, now looking back on it in Dutch, in Dutch, in Dutch culture, um, literally, you know, it's Black Santa Claus and he's evil. So um, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of different opinions in the Dutch culture about where Black Pete fits in. Of course, we were perfectly innocent in just taking this character um, called Schrock Pete, Black Pete, and, you know, having him be sort of the boogeyman. Um, probably would deal with it or explain it a little bit differently today. Um, and I didn't realize until recently, you know, reading a little bit about Monique, that she uh, is Dutch or half Dutch heritage, and I think. Suriname, which is very, very common in Amsterdam. Uh, a lot of my friends there are, you know, uh, of mixed heritage um, um, from Suriname and Thailand and uh, very interesting, just amazing people there. But anyway, um, yeah, there's, so there's that whole connection. These, these moves, these camera moves were really great with Morty. And I remember being really happy with how this scene turned out, but poor Eric was just you know, beside himself trying to figure out how to stay still. And he did a great job. Yeah, no, it's, I see, it's what one of the... see what you're saying about being a cluster because there's just so much going on uh, behind the scenes and on screen um, in, in, in this crowded room. So there definitely has to be some bonding and understanding uh, going through all of this for sure. Yeah, and then of course, I can't remember the chronology there, but Eddie... In real life, I guess um, Stacy Edwards um, became his real life girlfriend and then wife, and I think they're still together. But maybe you can correct me on that. I did not speak to them about that, but um, okay. I did. I did read about that as well. In which case, that would be the longest running relationship in Hollywood. <laughs> and um, yeah so there was a lot of uh, interesting tension as I recall um, between these two in, in these scenes and uh, yeah everybody took their roles really seriously but as I recall didn't take themselves too seriously which made for really fun characters yeah, the, the the shadow uh, play kind of in this in these shots and the darkness uh, with the cameras is really really great. Uh, how 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 yeah. long did the DP work with kind of just you know on set trying to make this work? Because I mean, like I said, the darkness and shadows in this is really perfect as far as uh, cinematography is concerned. Yeah, none of that was an accident. Bernd was a very visual, obviously being a DP, a super visual guy, but he was, what I remember with any DP I've ever worked with on a small movie, you know, making sure that they move, they can move quickly is key because there are people who are wonderful and light beautifully like this, but you need a lot of time and we didn't have a lot of time. So 
um, he was he was pretty nimble. That's what I recall. But yeah, all of these uh, these looks and shadows, this was all beautifully lit, and none of it was uh, none of it was an accident. And I suspect um, it's going to look even more beautiful when um, this process keeps going. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this was. Uh, Tony, Tony was a particularly uh, fun and upbeat guy, as I recall. You know, when you mix eight or ten actors, you're going to get a lot of different moods. And, and uh, everybody here really, you know, kind of just gelled. Yeah, I, I think Heather and Eddie's characters are, are definitely uh, some, you know, two, two of the best. Especially with, with Darren and everybody, because he kind of butts heads with a lot of people uh in in the film but it's all very authentic and and real which it definitely helps with the kind of the drama psychological aspect because you have to connect with these characters and i think that's the benefit of having such a barrage of characters like this that range from you know young to to older uh you know black and white there's someone uh anybody that watches this film can connect with somebody in the film. And I think that's a that's a big thing with psychological horror films is that in order to be real, you have to be able to connect your audience with that, um, with, with a character, any character, just one character. And I think this film allows that to happen. Well, that diversity was no, was not an accident. That was, I'm glad that you like that because that's, that was a big part of trying to make it appealing. Again, is it's similar to if you ever watched the original Outer Limits, more mm. more so than Twilight Zone. Outer Limits was always a playground for interesting writing and acting and directing and characters and themes that people might not be as interested in. But when they put it in the sci-fi setting, you know, those Outer Limits really hold up, and that that was always an inspiration to me. And so. Similarly here with these diverse characters and these sort of dark, dark themes is what made it fun and, and hopefully watchable. Well, it's even that sense of like, you know, in, in, in this sequence in general, I mean, Anne, uh, you know, her, her fear uh, is, you know, getting older. And even when she comes in and she's beautiful and, you know, she comes in and this is in this nightgown and, you know, try, you know, doing this seduction thing, she still wants the lights off because, you know, in, in reality, she's ashamed or scared of what she looks like with her age. And it's it just those like little things are very, very important uh, in films like this. And, and then that's why I have always said, and we've had this conversation offline too, is, you know, I've always been a big fan of this film, uh, but as I've gotten older, I've liked it more because, uh, you know, as I, you know, would watch more movies and just grew older, um, I would understand more about the film in sequences like that. Because when I was younger, I just thought it was, you know, a beautiful lady in a nightgown. <laughs> and why'd you turn the lights off? But now I understand. Um, so, yeah, there's just so many little key moments in this uh, in this film that help uh quite a bit as far as like the psychological part and I also think like with the cinematography alone 
uh, helps a lot because it's those dark areas that we hide things and we we uh, you know we hide our fears there we hide our secrets the truth uh, the lies and I think that really does help in this film so when you're saying none of this stuff is by accident it's very believable because it, it wouldn't it wouldn't happen by accident because it's it's too well thought out yeah and if you look at the um this shot here it's very dense and it's just really pretty to look at i mean the lighting is is pretty masterful and and moody yeah because it seems like we you know the only light we have is coming from the windows and that one uh candle thing that's uh that's up there on the mantle which it, it lights it perfectly for sure and then i think our buddy makes an appearance here yeah any yeah. second Yeah, that was pretty fun. It's almost like a, it felt like a small little callback to the Salem's Lot sequence um, with uh, with the vampire outside the window. And I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that was Eric standing there and not a uh, full size mannequin. But I could be I could be wrong. I have to ask Jason probably. Uh, Darren was really funny here. Of course, I can't hear anything, but uh, his whole character and persona was just right on yeah and all this tension between the guys i mean that stuff all worked really really well i thought now with the you know eddie's go ahead go ahead no i was just saying eddie's so much bigger than darren but darren holds his own because he's just you know you believe him i guess i'm See that move? I'd have to ask. That move where it looks like he just picked him up and threw him over there. I'm not sure that he didn't like shuffle over and he was in there, but that may have been a that may have been the mannequin. But we have to find out. <laughs> well, it did look like it was sped up just a tiny bit in order to make it seem like he just threw him down there. So, and now we're still, uh, you know, some of this, some of this uh, location-wise. I mean, it's such a a great idea for the location, especially being there. Pretty much all the time, even inside the cabins, was, uh, you know, I guess that feels more authentic for the actors, too, because they can kind of stay in character, uh, you know, throughout the day rather than traveling back and forth or going home and then coming back. So you, you, most of the actors just stayed there the entire time, correct? Oh, I, as I recall, everybody stayed there. Yeah. Other than if they were just shooting at the beginning and the end, but I think... Gosh, I think almost everyone was there for the shoot because there was always something that, you know, yeah. needed them. I, Vincent may remember that better than I do. Well, plus there was, you know, some yeah. traveling involved as far as going, you know, back and forth. But, you know, again, I think that helps uh, quite a bit with, um, you know, with, with actors in general. They're able to stay in the same location. And I think that helps, uh, you know... Uh, 
you know, I mean, a good actor can can do it, obviously, but it does. I imagine it does help with uh, that scenario situation. Yeah, well, we definitely put people up at the resort. I know a few people were staying at houses, but um, the resort was our best friend. I think they gave us locals' rates. Of course, now Lake Arrowhead has become, with the pandemic, has become the hottest spot anywhere near L.A. Good luck trying to buy a house up there right now. Everything's skyrocketed. People that have lived in L.A. for 30 years are just discovering it for the first time. But... I'm trying to remember who really did these these drawings. Any of the other guys mention it? Uh, no, not that not that I remember, but I I can definitely ask Vincent. Come on in, babe. Michael, please, don't be, don't make me do it. I'm just too scared. It's just water for Christ's sake. Come on in. Don't make her do it. Oh, here we go with the uh, the hot tub scene. I remember I was in uh, the West Beach Cafe having dinner with Anna, um, Anna Karen here, the actress. And I remember um, somebody, she was walking from the bathroom and a guy was walking by her and he stared at her and he literally walked into the wall <laughs> and practically broke, broke his nose. She was a really striking girl. And... Um, she was a good sport with all this. I think Vince drove her completely uh, crazy. and uh, But that's probably not fair since he's not around to respond to that. Well, I mean, I think that helps uh, yeah. with that, you know, that, that uh, chemistry between them anyway. Because it, it, it does feel, you know, uneven in, in the film because of you know, how he is, his age, and how young she is, and beautiful. So I think that really probably did help to its advantage of, uh, of between the characters themselves. Yeah, other than, other than one or two maybe being a few minutes late, well, of course, we had him captive up there. He was, uh, he was really good about showing up and, uh, and doing his thing, and he took it really seriously. Which was uh, which was fun. Yeah, I'm looking at this location, and um, yeah, the girls all got along too really well, as I recall. I don't think there was there was a lot of uh, a lot of infighting. Everybody was uh, pretty much a team player here. So you're recently up uh, up here, obviously. Um, you know when we did some of the interviews. Um, at, how much has changed with this? Did it expand? Did they tear things down and rebuild? Um, how how much how much different does it look from when it did when you shot this in the uh, what was it mid nineties? Yeah, it. Um, well, I mean, if unless somebody renovated this house, you'd, you'd be in these locations, and they literally wouldn't look any different. The um, the main parts of Lake Arrowhead are, are also really pretty much the same. You have a village right on the water. Um, the only thing that's different is sometimes it's really crowded on holidays or other days because uh, so many people are up there. Yeah, that was quite a quite a deal getting Morty to be in the be in the water. Um, yeah, Arrowhead is the hot spot these days. So yeah, but very you know very similar. You're up enough far out of LA that um, you know you feel like you've gone 
to uh, to another state, a little bit like being in Oregon, maybe. I remember, and I could be wrong that she was freezing, but then um, this was not a fun fun scene for her. But I think Vince really enjoyed uh, grabbing onto her after <laughs> every time coming out of the water. So uh, ju jumping out of, uh, you know, after this was uh, all pretty much done, what was um, you know, what was the tactic for uh, as far as the release was concerned um, with uh, with the film? Uh, with You know, because obviously it was a low budget, but did you try to get some theatrical um, or was it just the straight-to-video uh, kind of deal? No, we had a pretty substantial theatrical. I had always wanted it to get a shot in theaters and I think it was after the fact or at least after the fact of starting uh, principal photography where the guys at uh, what was well it was Academy Entertainment then became uh, went over and became Apex and then Unipix um, they were they were they were on board for doing a theatrical and I don't remember the exact number of, of uh, cities, but I think we were in as many as 10 or 15 uh, cities with, you know, full-on 35 release with, with ads. And we, we did pretty good business. We were up against all these big, big movies and multiplexes. And as I recall, there were nights where we were you know, number one of six or eight movies in a place, sometimes not as good, but overall, um, it did pretty good box office for this tiny little movie. And we used that to really help drive the video release when it happened. The other big part of what I did was I brought in my partner at the time, a guy who owned a bunch of record labels, and one of them was Warlock, and they had a real heavy uh, hip hop rap uh, artist uh, base and of course we've got Insane Clown Posse in this and Grave Diggers, <laughs> pretty well known guys and uh, Isham was a really cool happening uh, artist that we did the music video for and so by the time we were ready to go and put it out on video we had really been pumping up the fact it was a theatrical release you know back then it was a different business you'd have trade ads and we talked about, you know, theatrical release, you know, number one or number two in San Antonio or wherever, and then, you know, uh, legit soundtrack on Warlock Records. And that made a big difference, and we were number one in the country um, when it came out on video up against, I guess at the time, five, 10, 15, 20 million dollar movies back then. You know, big, big, big theatrical movies that were making the video debut so that was pretty cool and uh, that was why it made sense to do a sequel of course it made sense mostly for the distributors because as often as the case the distributors will amortize their success with one movie over 2019 that don't work so well and then uh, often don't want to pay the producers for all the money they made because they sometimes just go out of business. So yeah. I don't get into any details. What I will say is that the 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 process of working at Apex and Unipix 
um, resulted in a, a very great friendship with a person who came on as their um, co-chairman, CEO, a guy named David Fox, who had founded Fox Lorber. And he was a wonderful guy and a wonderful executive and very supportive and, you know, the opposite of the bad experiences people often have with executives in the indie world. And David has gone on to do many great things and continues to be involved in distribution. A lot of what he's done has been a premier premier expert in the documentary world, too. But, yeah, he founded the, the label Fox Lorber, and that went on to be Fox Lorber, and he ran Unipix and Apix. And then there were forces beyond his control where um, there was a guy that, um, an old guy that was a big money guy that was the, the money behind Unipix that was a Palm Beach guy, and I don't remember all the details, but they... They wound up over leveraging and they didn't pay GE credit back and the company went bankrupt and, you know, they're not the only ones. So I don't, I don't say that in a negative way. Just um, it is what it is. But I want to say something positive about the people who were really great, like David. And, um, yeah. So I remember this was a pretty, pretty wacky scene. I think there was some uncomfortable stuff for Monique in this, but I can't remember. Exactly. Um, a lot of bubble, a lot of bubble placement, <laughs> bubble wranglers, bubble bath wranglers. That's what I'm trying to say. And then. And so after after the theatrical, we had uh, you know this was a pretty big. Uh, you know, I mean, you mentioned bri bri briefly mentioned it, but this was a pretty big. Uh, you know, film film to see pretty much in every video store um, at the time. I mean, it's just the, the iconic cover uh, that popped out. Um, so so that was uh, definitely something that was <laughs> the shape that Eric is in right now. If he's in that suit, is definitely uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm reasonably sure that is Eric. But, um... <laughs> but uh, no, that, that I think that's great because it was just a small little movie. Had a small theatrical. Obviously, did did well um, and and became recognized as you know one of these '90s uh, horror films, uh, which is great. So, well, now it's going to be seen in all its uh, visual glory and, uh, oh, and yeah, sound, it's... which is really really exciting. Fun fun process for me too. Yeah, to now it's almost like seeing the movie for the first time again. That's that's what uh, essentially this is is like when you do restoration. Because you're you're gonna see things that you didn't see before, <laughs> you know. Because uh, obviously, you know, there's no, nothing with the cinematographer. He, you know, he was seeing film. He was seeing through the lens. But you know, after things are on VHS and next generation, next generation sourcing from that, it, it tends to look, uh, you know, bad. Uh, especially with these new televisions and and things like that. The technologies keeps growing, and it makes these things look worse. Uh, so it's nice to actually, you know, restore these films. And, and like I said, it's like seeing them for the first time again, which is great. Well, it will be for some of the people that see them in these bootleg forms. Somebody was at Sky Park, Santa's Village, when we were doing the interviews. And she was sitting on her phone and turned to me and said, hey, I'm watching the movie. And I said, really, where? And it was 10 different YouTube uploads in Spanish um, and fuzzy. <laughs> so, yeah. You know. The, those are those are less important, I guess, to pull down than than uh, than when the whole movie is loaded up. But we'll 
we'll be looking at a lot of those, I'm sure, when that happens. But yeah, you know, and this this is not bad. This what what uh, what DVD am I looking at, guys? Is this a uh, one of the original artistry? Uh, no, the artistry is the artistry's cut. So um, this so, is this is the uncut uh, version. Um, this is but, the four. This is four by three. So I, I want to say this is is close to probably what v, was on VHS uh, was transferred to DVD. Okay. Yeah. So this is definitely yeah. No, not, I can not tell it's artistry version. Have we ever figured out why artistry edited so heavily? <laughs> no, I, those guys. I, yeah, it was very bizarre because it's it's uh, you know again uh, with a lot of people that don't know this is going to be one of the first times other than you know the VHS that was released where you know it's an uncut version um, because the DVD that was mass produced was cut uh, by several minutes you know a any, yeah. any nudity um, any side boob really any heavy violence even some swearing is missing because uh, I have that version. And it's very bizarre of why it was so heavily cut. Uh, yeah, you know. I tried to figure that out, and I couldn't really. I mean, they, they went out of business, too. And, uh, it, you know, my only guess is maybe somebody uh, at that company was really religious and thought we could let's make money from exploit, you know, exploitive uh, horror films. But let's cut out all the things that make it in my in my opinion i mean everything worked here the nudity the sex the violence profanity yeah it's, it's not all part of what made it not a tv movie you know I know, so this location, this is the Santa's Village, I imagine. Yeah, and I'm looking, wow. Um, I mean, I've sort of seen this recently, but not really sitting down like this. It is, it is amazing what they've done there. I mean, first of all, there was a real charm to this place being dilapidated at the time and kind of funky and, and run down. Um, but to be clear, the folks that came in and and uh, reopened it in the last few years have just done a beautiful job and it's just first class all the way. All the finishings are, all the craftsmanship is just beautiful and they've really brought it back to even, uh, you know, better shape than it was back in the 50s. But as, you know, I had learned or relearned, uh, you'll see somewhere here the, the, they call it the bumblebee monorail. Uh, you see those green posts where the, where the little bumblebees float. Can you see that there? Yeah. One of them's hanging there. So those were the first monorails in the world. They opened six months before the monorails at Disneyland. So I think in 1955, which if you're like a little bit of a monorail junkie, whatever that means, like <laughs> I am, it's, it's kind of a cool fact. So yeah. they, um, they, were, they were pretty rickety by the time we were shooting this. Um, they've restored the the those posts, those green posts you see, but they're putting a elevated bicycle ride on it.
Yeah, in retrospect, I mean, you'd be hard pressed to go create a set like this uh, without spending a ton of money. I had that Black Pete, that figure here. I had that in my house for a while for Halloween, and it totally fucked people's heads up, little kids that would go by, because it was, it was not what you'd get at Walmart. <laughs> and, uh, so this is essentially kind of like a, a small like theme park, um, Santa's Village then? Yeah, it was a, a, a predecessor to Disneyland, like, you know, Santa Claus meets Disneyland. Yeah. With all these rides. But imagine if this was, a you know, a big studio movie and we conceived this sort of rundown, you know, scary Santa's Village Park. To put this together and build it would have been a fortune. And uh, the people that owned at the time were, were super nice and let us shoot just, there yeah they just let close after they closed down they let you have free reign kind yeah, of like in the that's park. my recollection is when the park closed down some days it may not even have been open but it was definitely it was definitely running back then i just i think they had limited mm -hmm. hours definitely not at night and um yeah this stuff like with leland coming out of the shadows is all really beautifully shot by Berend. and i remember a lot of people being creeped out shooting there at night and everybody trying to scare each other because it was pretty funky at night. It's lots of. Uh, well, yeah, know, I think even even the yeah even the stuff around like it's this happy place, but at night sometimes this happy stuff can look pretty pretty sinister. To be honest with you. Yeah, I love that. You know, Mo Monique. You know, it's always interesting to watch what actors do when they're not speaking or you can't hear them. And she was very authentic, and uh, I love this train scene. So that magic train ride is is sort of half gone. It doesn't go through a tunnel anymore, but there is a train that rides around. They restored them. But um, there was a really cool tunnel, which you'll see. This is kind of fun to, uh, to revisit this. Yeah, I love these moving shots with the train. I mean, they just look so cool. And um, all those guys were, I mean, about as creepy as you could get and <laughs> much, much like the you know Disneyland old Disneyland is when you go through whatever yeah, yeah, Alice in Wonderland yeah it does add a flavor and still kind of goes into the kind of the the doll you know mannequin type thing as well now I'm not 100% sure we didn't make that Jack and Jill with the knife up I'm not sure that'd be really interesting to find out I think that was an extra touch I could be wrong I don't know if you saw that a second ago, but yeah, yeah, Jack and Jill by. and a big butcher's knife. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think that was there, with the little kids going. So is, is this a real shot that that's it? Like this wasn't constructed for the movie. This was this existed in the park. This so this did it. exist, and this was like production value. Here you go. Yeah, I'm gonna give you this scary tunnel. No, so yeah, amazing. we just made the best of an existing location, and it really Barrett lit it beautifully. This stuff yeah, looks it's great. absolutely um, stunning. Yeah, that stuff is gone now. That tunnel's gone, uh, but the train still rides around. And um, yeah, I loved all these weird, weird shots. Vincent and uh, Barrett worked really well in coming up with a lot of. Funky stuff, a lot of imaginative stuff that that um, was budget conscious. Yeah, it's, it gives a, just a nightmarish flavor to the to the film. So I'm trying to remember this. Uh, 
Oh yeah, they find her and they don't know what happened. I think there was a some talk of a possible rape. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. D Darren Darren uh, mentions I think in this sequence right here that she was that she was raped. Yeah, so I think we did not share all the details of the uh, of the storyline with our our hosts at this uh, children theme park. They might have uh, they might have thought otherwise. Not that there's anything you know really terrible, but they you know probably wouldn't promote the rape scene in the movie when they're promoting the little the theme park. For people, but this place was closed for a good 20, I want to say 20 years, and um, just reopened maybe two years ago. They have a big bicycle um, trail park that's part of it now. It's really brought a lot of people up there. Maybe we should film the Fear Three there, <laughs> give it a bicycle theme. So, yeah, I remember he wanders out and everybody's certain that uh, he was up to no good. And this scene was, uh, everybody really got into it. I remember there was some... Looks like it's pretty cold there, too. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to remember exactly when we shot it, but uh, we... We're lucky we did. I have shot a movie up there with snow, and um, it is a nightmare. And uh, we did another film with uh, Tom Sandoval from Vanderpump Rules more recently, and we had a massive snowstorm in the um, grip of an electric truck, jackknifed, and we had a lot of problems because sometimes there's a you know foot or two of snow. So we would have probably logistically never been able to do this if it had been similar on this movie. So, yeah, you know, Anne did a, Anne really got into this character, I gotta say. She pulled off, uh, as they all did, she really pulled off a really believable, Yeah. you know. As I'm saying, everybody, everybody's uh, incredibly authentic in this film, and it, it adds so much to, um, I mean, to the film in general, so. And a lot of this stuff was hard to pull off because it was so, you know, with any movie, you're rarely shooting in sequence. But we had some particular challenges in, you know, keeping the continuity going. So how much in was sense, the film shot in sequence uh, as far as, um, you know, uh, this, like the stuff at Santa's Village was, you know, obviously that was shot and, you know, they didn't go back. But uh, as far as um, kind of, uh, I guess, yeah, with the progression of the film, how much was shot uh, in that order? Oh, I can tell you exactly not. Um, it's only 25 years ago. Um, that is a Vincent question. Uh, it would be great if I knew the answer to that. My recollection is that uh, it was one of our biggest challenges was that there were so many characters and so many locations relative to a small film like this that that 
was not very sequential, and that was a challenge. Gotcha. And we don't see too many don't see too many fuck ups in terms of. Am I allowed to say that? Yeah, you um, can say whatever you want. <laughs> okay, and um, and Stacy uh, Roush, who was the script supervisor, really did do a good job of of minimizing potential problems that were there from continuity. Because, as you know, if you don't have a little planning on these low budget movies, that's where it can all yeah. go wrong. Oh, for sure. So now we're starting with kind of. Um, you know the, the the third act here, as far as uh, Morty um, and the fear uh, coming about. So we have you know um, Leland seeing Leland's character seeing all that money being pulled down and then being stranded. Um, so it really makes you kind of question here exactly what's what's happening. Starts to fuck with your head quite a bit. Yeah, I'm not sure that the actors knew what was happening at this point. Um, <laughs> there were a couple of days we were, we were, okay, what exactly are we doing? And you know, there was some, some rewriting and adjusting going on whenever you have this many characters and um, a story that's as twisted as this. But, but again, a credit to, you know, to Ron Vincent Bernd for really keeping it together. And pretty coherent on uh, without having all the tools that you would like to have. Now, was uh, Ron on set uh, a lot? Um, you know, doing rewrites and stuff like that, or had had was he just another person that was hanging around? Um, you know, do, I mean, because a lot of writers do that. Because you, you and him both yeah. had this. You, you know, because you initially came up with this kind of story. Uh, so what was the story that you gave Ron or asked Ron to write? Like how much was in your head and then gave to him and then how much did he elaborate? Um, pretty loose, the basic concept and then mm. the outlining of characters. You know, here are these fucked up characters and this is what this one's doing and then, and then everything else was... You know, was them. I can't take much credit for the actual, um, for the actual script. I gave the the framework, and uh, yeah. Then I guess Vincent added another layer uh, to all of that. Obviously, very much so. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think at times, the you know the actors also brought things in early on that got built into the script. Um, Darren brought a lot to this to this character, as, as did Anne. I remember this, this stuff was really uh, kind of weird in a good way. It just, it, um, it all worked. Again, some of it was kind of uncomfortable, you know, mm -hmm. um, but that, that made it pretty interesting. There were other actors who were going, what the fuck's going on in this movie right now? What's, what's this about? <laughs> People were a little bit confused. Um, and not every actor, you know, reads the script carefully outside of their own roles. That's always interesting to watch who, who knows every other person's lines and who only knows their lines. Um, 
most people here were pretty generous with each other in terms of yeah was this stuff even was cut out of the uh of the artistry version i think yeah there there's like i said i i think there's a good uh 15 minutes or something 10 or 15 minutes missing from that artistry uh version so. yeah because they list the actual running time but it's not which is really strange they list the official you know theatrical and uh, original video release running time and yet it's way short of that which is really weird i had nothing to do with that so anybody that's a real fan don't blame me for that um but listen you know good place to say this i you know we had um been doing an international film market i believe it was in italy and one of the buyers in Indian, uh, uh, Indian territory, as in um, the country, um, came in and said, hey, you know, we bought the movie and you want to see the trailer? And like, sure. And he put on a trailer and it was like the actors and then it would cut to hardcore sex. Um, they just inserted just literally like sex scenes. And this guy was so proud of what, you know, they had done and I had to go to a colleague and say, are they allowed to do this? He's like, yeah, they can. And they do that a lot in India. And it was just a, kind of funny, you know. No, what, actually, we, we, we deal with that quite a bit, um, you know, with, uh, with some of these films that we release, um, you know, when films were still sold uh, to other territories uh, overseas, a lot, of, a lot of films were put in hardcore like interstitial, like, you know, scenes in the film, uh, you know, wherever there was a sex scene, it wouldn't even be the same actors. It would just, you know, be hardcore uh, pornography. And, yeah. and, you know, and it's odd because a lot of people over here didn't know that existed because it was just for that overseas. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a, it was a standard, like, practice. Uh, very bizarre. But um, I guess that's what sold movies over there. Um I, I don't get it, but, you know, it, it did exist. Well, if I had that trailer from India, um, at the um, at the end of it, it goes right from this hardcore sex scene to Morty turning his head. <laughs> it was like, you know, we... <laughs> yeah, this was a crazy scene to shoot. Love the camera work here. Darren really got into it. And... Uh, this was kind of rough filming. We really were in the woods. Obviously, no, no practical set. I mean, uh, just a, a very, very low a lighting too, which which um, yeah. adds so much because you know, again, it feels authentic that you're actually out there versus you know a lot of films that are very, very well lit uh, in the woods. It doesn't make any sense. Um, so, yeah, know, it's a fine line too between being. Um, realistic and dark and not and un, and not able to see it and of course this is the former it's very well uh dark and really beautiful and you you know what's going on but it's scary because it's so dark um Yeah, back at Santa's village. Oh yeah, 
I forgot about that for a minute. Now, was that seen in the artistry version? Because that would tell a lot. I uh, I don't remember because I've only watched I think it once or twice. Um, but I, I like I said I know it's it's cut pretty heavily, so I would imagine a cross being stabbed into someone's chest <laughs> would equate to the same thing with them cutting out the nudity and everything. <clears throat> yeah, and then I remember we. I never like I never like guns on the set makes me nervous. When I was very, very, very young and I was out here, I got to know just a little bit, John Eric Hexham, who was in a TV series, nobody would remember this now, I can't remember the show. He was a big star on ABC for like a minute because he, he was the lead in this TV show and he accidentally uh, killed himself playing around on the set with a loaded gun. Thanks. Um, yeah, I forgot about the Ann aging scene. Not very high tech, but hey, you know. It gets the point across. This is actually a pretty terrifying sequence with Monique. She she really yeah. did a great job in this. Yeah, I remember in post getting the voice right. No, she she really did a terrific job in this. And this was nice and creepy. This whole sequence kind of adds a different different flavor to it to the movie because we're actually getting into the horror uh now um which really works because it, it has been quite the build-up in general yeah eric eric was really great i love this scene that's the first time he gets moving and <laughs> look at her jump it's Yeah, this was all really fun, uh, fun, well-designed sequence with her, with him mm -hmm. inhabiting her. Can't remember all the words. I guess it was our equivalent of red rum. Yeah, yeah, it has it has that feel and, you know, even vibes of The Exorcist and... You know, just just straight up possession as it uh, as it is. Yeah, those scenes in the woods with people in the graves was was not a lot of fun to do either. Yeah, some of this stuff. Is yeah, well, I'm having fun watching this, so I should yeah, be talking, yeah. but. Yeah, no, no, I mean, it's extremely well done. It's tense. It's well lit. Um, I think a lot of times when you do commentaries like this, you fall silent when, um, when, when, when the action starts to really kick in. Now, that was my buddy Greg Rozick playing Vince Edwards' butt double, <laughs> um, which was, was pretty funny. And he has an interesting credit at the end of the movie. But I won't say what it is. And uh, that was all a little bit uh, a little bit uncomfortable or risque to film for everybody, but they all got through it. 
I think Vince wanted to play himself at 25, but we had to get him a double. The double was the carpenter, too, on the movie, by the way. Everybody had a couple of jobs. That's what you got to do with these independent stuff, man. You, everybody's got to wear multiple hats. That's how you make it, make it happen. Yeah, and if I recall, we did a lot of... I don't even know if this was Steadicam. Uh, there's a lot of handheld in these sequences, although I'm guessing this was mostly Steadicam. Yeah, and props to Darren, because he's got to get rough a couple times, you know, and I imagine that's kind of hard to do. And, I mean, it was there, how many stunt people were kind of in place of, uh, you know, it was stuff with, like, Ann and Darren. It was probably just them, correct? Um, I think we had uh, one of each limited mm -hmm. um, on the stunts. I think when Monique falls off the balcony. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember, you know, who, God, poor kid. We had to do this without traumatizing him. I think, do you know anything about him? I think he may um, have uh, exited the show business after this. <laughs> no, I, I didn't research anything on the kid. It's, um, I was going to ask you, how, how is that working with, uh, with, I mean, I guess that was more or less Vincent working with him than anything, but... Uh... No, I was really careful. Yeah, he was, of course, but I was really careful. I'm, if I recall, we all talked to him and, you know, said this is just fun and, you know, kooky stuff and don't be scared by anything. And I'm pretty sure he was A-OK, -okay, as I recall. Um, yeah, but I do think that, you know, he went on to not to not be in the business, but not because of this, I'm sure. A lot of times these kids show up on interviews because the parents uh, want them to be in show business because six-year-olds don't usually read through the trades and go, I want to be in this movie. Yeah. But par but parents are looking going, hey, how do I get my kid in the movie? Yeah, this scene here, I think, is where she goes to the window. That was a stunt person, obviously. Yeah. So we did, we did, we did splurge there. <laughs> uh. Or that may have been the neighbor that had too much to drink, and we said, "Hey, we got a great role for you," and <laughs> no, nobody, nobody ever saw her again. Yeah, some of um, Eric's movements at Morty are, are, are really, um, really well done as far as, um, you know, him kind of getting into that character. Uh, was that mainly brought on for himself or was that more direction with Vincent? Like, how, how do you remember how, uh, how that was actually presented to him of what to do? Or was that just him? I believe, you know, Vincent encouraged him to be proactive in bringing his own thing to it. And as I understand, Eric really took the whole concept really seriously and maybe brought 
Tai Chi or other, other you know, movement, um, uh, studied movements to, you know, to the character and, and really, really made it something, you know, real for himself and took it really seriously. And it shows, I mean, you know, he's under all that makeup and prosthetics and you really believe, you know, you know, for me, he sells it. And so I think Eric gets a lot of credit for, for doing a lot with the character. And the confrontation scene with the with Vince. Not sure where in the sequence we did this. But there's get to bring in I think fun themes of incest and I mean pretty much everything taboo we brought in at some point in this movie. Yeah, the film's uh, definitely darker than, um, you know, and I think it goes a lot with some, you know, a lot of horror films in general. There is this really dark element that uh, is uh, kind of the underlying tone in these films. And this one has a few, uh, a couple, and it, and, it, and it works. Yeah, I love that scene a second ago where Morty turns his head. That was, I think we used that in the trailer. And it was fun to watch it in the theaters. I mean, there were some pretty full houses and uh, people definitely, you know, were jumping and screaming. And that's really fun, obviously, in a horror movie. To, it's kind of the ultimate thing you want to have happen is people collected in one space, you know, collectively being affected by something that's not real, that they are feeling as real, you know, at that moment. That's the goal on a, on a horror movie. Or a fantasy film. Yeah, this set was heavily decorated and pretty, uh, pretty heavy at this point. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember how much Vince died not so, so long after this. And, there's some chance he may have even been sick when we did this and nobody knew. He, he was very private at the end. He, he really didn't want to share what was going on with people. It's somewhat of a different role for him through his, uh, you know, massive career. Um, you know, definitely uh, different from what he normally was doing. Um, oh, yeah. Which is, you know, always neat for an actor and also... You know, especially towards the end of their, you know, career, uh, not so much the, you know, uh, the death aspect, but as getting older, you know, um, maybe it's, we're in a, we're in an industry with, uh, you know, primarily young people, especially in these horror films and stuff like this. So it's always, it's always cool to see, uh, especially older actors like that have done so much doing something uh, low budget and it was a horror film uh, of like this it really adds uh, kind of after the fact thinking back on it not so much while watching the movie but thinking oh well that's kind of neat that Vince Edwards was was yeah. in uh, in the fear um, well for those that don't know he was Ben Casey uh, he was the original TV doctor more famous than any actor that's ever done from Marcus Welby to Clooney in ER Vince was on the cover of TV Guide more times, I think, than any actor. He was world famous and world recognizable. I mean, that's how big, 
you know, that character was. Every, you know, half the country was tuned in to watch him as Ben Casey. And, um, and I think he was in a, either a Twilight Zone or a Outer Limits, I'm trying to remember. But, um, yeah, and as I say, he was in Kubrick's The Killing, which is a pretty seminal movie. Yeah, it was, um, and it's just kind of neat, kind of. I guess with you working with him, uh, was in a, a a couple of your your horror films too. So, just kind of nice to kind of see him be part of that uh, that family, I guess. Yeah, he he was a lot of fun in uh, Return to Horror High, and uh, this is where Morty really gets going. How long was the shoot for this? How, how long were you up at Lake Arrowhead in total as far as uh, actually being on set, on set like that? I want to say 20 days, but yeah. Vincent can probably, you know, a director is going to remember. I only had this number of days more than I am. And then there's this whole awkward gun scene, which was actually kind of horrifying. And again, not me not liking guns, you know, having everybody check things 20 times to make sure. Yeah, Morty being able to run in that outfit—not an—not an easy thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, but but that adds so much uh, as, as far as the realism of it, of it really looking like a, uh, you know, a dummy. Uh, adds adds so much because so many times we watch these movies where dolls come to life and then, you know, their doll parts don't move anymore like they should. You know, something like Child's Play. This really does, you know, it, it, it maintains kind of, you know, these parts are the only moving parts, you know, especially like around that waist area with him. Um, you know, he does have this awkward run, which would be if the mannequin dummy did come to life. That's how he would probably run. Yeah, who knows what it would be if uh, it was all CGI'd. I don't know, I'm not a fan of... Um... What's the Harrison Ford movie, uh, Call of the Wild, the new one? Yeah. Where the the, the dog is 100% CGI. And there are moments you look at that and it, you know, it sells as a dog, but other moments where it's just, it's it's too done, you know? Yeah, and, well, there's, uh, no, there's no connection. You know, there's, there's no connection when you have a lot of, you know, like if Morty was CGI, for instance, you wouldn't have the same reaction as you would if it was a mannequin coming to life. You know, um, it adds so much flavor. So, you know, especially in horror films when you want to be scary, uh, sometimes you can't be scary as CGI. Yeah, we did a little CGI in Fear 2, but um, just a little bit. The technology was starting to become a little more accessible and low budget, but. Um, I love this sequence yeah. because this is, uh, you know, pure uh, Beagle right here. <laughs> this is this is John at his finest with these, uh, you know, these creatures and, and stuff like that. Yeah, he sure had fun with what he was doing. 
Yeah, and this was... Yeah, the little guy's in this more than I remembered. He had quite a... quite a bit to do. Be interesting to talk to him now and see if he, uh... had any nightmares. I'd probably feel <laughs> guilty if I knew. Yeah, a little bit of a psychological uh, psychobabble here to tie it all in with Wes. Yeah, part of my deal with Wes was we would not exploit him or have people think, you know, he was the star of the movie and, you know, and I honored that. Now, there are a couple of... Uh, versions that have him as the star of the movie international they bootlegged it but I have no control over that it's like um, my red surf movie with George Clooney when he was very young there have been a couple of bootlegs and the artwork has his you know at 50 years old superimposed so it looks like he's currently starring in the movie which is really lame and uh, I don't approve of that so much more interesting to stick to the truth and the original stuff, I think. Yeah, all yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's it definitely, definitely. Um, it, it's a disappointment when 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 you have these preconceived notions of something for sure. What are you gonna say about the grave sequence? Yeah, this is all just really kind of weird and interesting and low tech to tackle, but kind of oddly works, you know. No real big effects. The whole inner child. I'm looking forward to watching it again with the sound. Yeah, and really show um, Burns, uh, you know, some of his work is, like I said, outstanding, so. See, that's pretty, that's always really terrifying when the killer runs after somebody rather than walking. Um, I remember seeing this as when I, like I said, when I was a kid and, um, you know, I, I honestly, when, when I was a kid, you know, very young, um, I guess I was maybe 12 or 13 or so when I originally saw this and, and, and what really grabbed me with this movie was the, you know, the third act when everything starts, because that's what I'm going to be more attracted to, um, you know, as an adult, obviously the whole movie, uh, has always really stuck with me. But um, I remember seeing this as a kid, and I was I was really because I, I very much like you. Uh, the only film that ever scared me when I was a child, um, and I saw it very young, was Child's Play because I had a thing with dolls and dummies, and you know, like you said, it matter how much coming to life, uh, and that really terrified me. So this is this really got me because I was seeing this as you know, man, I can come to life, um, and then you know, exploiting people's worst fears, uh, too. So that, that's, uh, kind of a double whammy in, in a way, for sure. Well, and I was very young. I was only 13 or 14 when I produced this. So <laughs> don't laugh. Just a, just a bad joke. But yeah, um, I'm not, sh I mean, this whole, the whole fear of face, that was my concept, you know, that people, their worst fear would be, would happen. I'm not, I know it's been done in quite a few movies. I don't think that 
it was conscious from any movie I had ever seen, and I'm not, I'm trying to remember which movies, you know, have done that. I think most of them since this one were, you know, people's, you know, overcoming their worst fears manifest if they, if they can't face them down. Um, I'm not sure it had been done like this. Well, it de definitely happened more after this. It was, you know, became more of a, a common trope, definitely later uh, in, 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 uh, in cinema. But, um, yeah, as far as beforehand, because um, not a lot of people were doing psychological horror. People were doing straight horror, you know. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, definitely a different time. And plus, like I said, the 90s, uh, you know, that was such a, such a weird time uh, for horror in general. Because um, so much was coming out, and many people were trying different things, and and honestly, '90s horror gets shit on quite a bit um, from from fans, and I honestly think it's one of the more important decades for horror because people were trying to do new things, and even if the movies weren't great, they influenced so much uh, for this younger crowd, such as my age and a little older. Um, we were heavily influenced by these because these in the 90s things were so accessible at the video store um, with, with film that it really inspired me it inspired many many people that I know of and we, we can sit back and say all oh, that movie wasn't too good but there was something about that time um, you know with these films in particular that that hit very very hard so I always stand yeah. up for '90s horror 100% because I, I think it I is love a it. crucial, crucial, crucial time and a crucial moment for horror. Um, you know, because like I said, we're coming out of the slasher and monster age in the '80s. You know, what was next? We couldn't keep doing that. You know. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true, and I love this scene at the end when he goes in the water, and it um, it all kind of works. You know, it's. Well, everything circles back. I mean, because we have, you know, we have the closure with the characters, and then eventually, you know, we see Eddie back with, with, uh, with Wes, uh, his character, and then eventually it, it comes back to, you know, a new child with uh, facing facing the fear. I guess the only unanswered question is that, <laughs> you know, what happened to all these people and they ended up dead. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I think that's, uh, that's part of kind of the mystery and, um, you know, the, the, the psychological drama part. And here we are you back know, with Wes in the high school. Yeah. I think we shot at the Rim of the World High School, which would never happen today, but... First of all, you can't even go into a school right now, but yeah, just with liability and things like that, it, it was like, can Wes Craven come in and play the professor in one of the principal's offices? Okay, sure. <laughs> and I had a couple of friends driving him around. They were, they were kind of on top of the world. I got to drive Wes Craven from the hotel to the high school, and he was such a nice guy. And then also, you know, on a side note, which in a weird way I relate to this uh, or, or relate West to this is that 
you know, you have a film here with, uh, you know, a lot of people may not think it's substantial as far as the beer is concerned, but it really is kind of this landmark film, I believe, especially in the video industry. But you also have Wes Craven in the film who has molded the horror genre three times in his career. No one else has done that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, with the Last House on the Left and then Nightmare on Elm Street and Scream, he literally changed the game three freaking times, which is insane. He yeah, he... you know, and then you have him in this movie, which I still think, like I said, '90s horror uh, shaped a lot of what we're seeing today. Uh, I know people discount it quickly, but you know, again, that brings it all in full full circle for myself. Uh, you know, Wes Craven being in this, that says something, you know. But that's just me. That's just me. I Obviously, that wasn't intentional because you can't guess that thing, but it's just kind of funny how everything goes in together uh, and falls into place. Well, it's great to hear you say that. And I, I mean, clearly, you know, Wes was already a version of Wes Craven, you know, at that point. He was that guy. And so having him do this was... Yeah, I mean, it sounds like such a cliche, but it, you know, it was an honor. It was, it was uh, special. Oh, absolutely. And, um, yeah. We talked a little about it. At, um, I ran into him at Cannes, at the film festival. Kind of an unusual setting for him. On it was on a yacht, and he came on board, and we all chatted and uh, had a little, a little good reminiscing about it. And, uh, here we go at the end with the, with the new kid. I'm not sure. Are you a good guy or are you a bad guy? Line. I remember <laughs> yeah, where that yeah. Came. No, that's that's a really it's a really great great uh, line for sure. And you don't know what he's gonna do. Is he gonna kill the kid? Is he gonna bat the ball back and forth? really like this freeze frame and move in yeah Adam Levy was uh, yeah that's what I thought wouldn't it be great if I remembered my own credits yeah that's what I remember <laughs> I, I had a story sometimes I'll take a story credit um, Adam Levy was ran Warlock Records and his father was the legendary Mo Levy who Robert De Niro played and um, he really was responsible for helping me pull together this great soundtrack of all these cameos. Young Pete is Greg B.D. Rozick, no comment. Um, and oh God. Yeah, anybody of these uh, people really stand out? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to... Um, Trying to see them as we go along here. I mean, a lot of these people have gone on to have really solid, you know, careers. You know, major players on crews. Um, yeah, I'm just looking at the. Uh, uh, art studio teacher. Transportation coordinator Barry Illman was a 
South African mercenary. He drove me up the hill in a, a car. It's about a 25 minute trip up. He did it in seven and a half minutes going 100 miles an hour around the curves. I thought I was gonna die. <laughs> I didn't know people could drive cars like that and still keep them on the road. Um, Claremont camera. I say, I see That's that right. big, see big bear, big bear catering. So you big bear they, catering came down from Big Bear to Arrowhead because there yeah. was nobody like them in Lake Arrowhead. Um, certainly, um, Kevin Morris and Michael Barnes, legal associates, went on to become two of the biggest players in uh, the legal world in entertainment. Major, major players, and all these people. Linda Dorf, to this day, I'm working with her. One of the top publicists in the business. See, Ivan Revin's name in here. Where, 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 where oh, I gave her pro. Yeah, her Perlman got a credit. He was the big uh, Ivan Reitman. Um, Kevin say, yeah. Marvin and Sherry Winkler were um, investors to this day, close friends. Marvin went on to uh, found Body Glove, or actually, he had already bought and sold Body Glove for $100 million, I think, back then, which was a lot of, probably three or $400 million now, and um, is one of the biggest guys in, uh, in the, uh, the schmata business, as we'd say, or in the sports apparel business. He's partnered with Magic Johnson. Yeah, I'm sure if I ran these credits again, I could come up with even more, but there are <laughs> some funny, funny stories, and I love those guys from Isham. We all became friends. and. Uh, yeah, there's a music video for this. I'm just as I'm thinking that we shot in the Santa Monica Theater, um, and Phil McKeon, my client and friend from Alice, the TV show, is in it, and I think Emilio Estevez um, came by. I think that's it. <laughs>